0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series uh, called Choosing Contentment. And my hope and my prayer for this series is is that rather than uh, chasing contentment, hoping that someone or somewhere or something else will provide that contentment you're chasing after, that we would instead choose to be content. With who God has made us to be, with where God has placed us, and with what God has given us, regardless of how much or how little that may be. And I think over time, we start to see that really it doesn't matter how much we have at any given point in time, we, we still want more, don't we? We want it bigger, we want it better, we want it newer, we want it faster. I remember the, uh, the first apartment that Jill and I had in Ames when we were in college after we got married. It was barely 400 square feet. I think this stage was bigger than our, than our apartment. But uh, you know, after life in the dorms with a bunch of guy roommates, um, it felt like a palace, right? We had our own bathroom that I didn't have to share with other guys. Jill learned that she had to share a bathroom with a guy. That wasn't as much of a palace for her probably. And it was great until we moved to Arizona, and we moved to Arizona, we, we bought our first home, and, and now it was huge. It was like, like 1,500 square feet. We had, we had three bedrooms, we didn't, have, we didn't even barely have one bedroom's worth of furniture. We had a two-car garage, we had a backyard for the dog. We were living the American dream, until we realized that you don't live in Phoenix without a swimming pool. Just don't do that. But we did that, and so we knew we needed to fix that, and so we built a newer house, a bigger house. More bedrooms, more bathrooms, a three car garage, and a pool in the backyard. And this was like, it was the perfect house until we moved to Illinois. And then we learned that when you get to Illinois, you got to have a, a basement, and not just a basement, but a finished basement, and, and you got to have trees, lots of trees. And so the house that we got out in Crystal Lake, it, it was even bigger with more bedrooms that we didn't have furniture for, and it had this, this finished basement that uh, we didn't have furniture for, and it had an acre of oak trees, and it backed up to a forest preserve. It was It was great. And while each house came with more square footage, each house came with more bedrooms and bathrooms and a bigger yard, you know what it also came with? A bigger mortgage. And that wasn't as much fun. It, it took more time to clean. It took more time to mow the yard. You needed more stuff to fill the rooms. Like, each time we moved, it was all about more. And what we learned with each move is that it doesn't matter how much or how little you have. You're still not content, are you? You're still not content, you still want more. And now we live in Arlington Heights in a, in a little tiny house that was actually so small our real estate agent wouldn't show it to us the first time. She, just, she handed us the listing and she circled the square footage and she wrote no. Eventually she showed it to us. But the house, it's so small now that instead of wanting a swimming pool, instead of wanting uh, a basement or a big backyard, you know what, all I really want right now is I want a wider driveway so that we don't have to play musical cars in the morning. So like this morning I got up and I forgot to change cars last night, so Jill's in the back, so I gotta back her car out, pull the van out, pull hers back in, and then take off. We get to play that on Sunday mornings. I'd like to have a closet that is wider than the actual width of the door so that we don't have to like hang hangers on hangers. You know, those kind, we got like four hangers hanging off of one hanger. I don't know how the rod's holding all that. But like rarely are we settled, are we? Rarely are we satisfied with what we have, and rather than choosing contentment with what we have, we are driven by this desire for more, thinking that if only I had more of something, more money, a a larger pension or retirement fund, a bigger house, a newer car, nicer clothes, more friends, or maybe even more time, that then I'd finally be content. We're chasing contentment rather than choosing it. And we will cross lines and we will do whatever it takes to capture it. And in this morning's passage, Apostle Paul, he he warns of that very thing and he approaches it uh, from two different angles, two sides of the coin, if you will. First, he shows us the benefits of, of choosing contentment with what you have. And then on the other side, he shows us the danger of coveting what you don't, of chasing contentment in more. And doing whatever it takes to capture it. And so on the first side of the coin, what we're going to see is this. Why don't you write this down. It's that pursuing God leads to contentment. All right? Pursuing God leads to contentment. Look at verse 6 here. Paul writes to Timothy and says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. A little context here. Paul, he's writing to his young disciple by the name of Timothy. Timothy, he traveled with Paul, he helped him plant churches, he uh, was with Paul as he wrote some of these letters to churches, and now Timothy had been entrusted in in, in overseeing the church in Ephesus, Um, not necessarily as their pastor, but as Paul's representative to the church. He was there to love and care for the church, in part by, Paul says, uh, keeping a close watch on the teaching and ensuring that they were teaching sound doctrine. And Paul says that this sound doctrine, this orthodoxy, uh, is, is what leads to godliness, to orthopraxy, right? It's, it's right beliefs leading to right behaviors. And in chapter 4 of this letter, he urged Timothy to be, to be trained in the words of the faith and of this good doctrine, training himself for godliness, right? That same word that we see here in verse 6. And that's what uh, spiritual growth and spiritual formation are. It's, it's being formed more and more into the image of Christ, right? growing to be more like Jesus as we faithfully follow the way of Jesus. But not only was he to train himself, Paul says in verse 2 that he is to teach and urge this sound doctrine that leads to godliness to others as well. And that included refuting the false teaching and rebuking the false teachers, those who Paul says were teaching a different doctrine, One that did not agree with the sound words of Jesus or the way of Jesus. They were teaching, Paul says, that godliness is in and of itself a means of gain. They were preaching a prosperity gospel. A prosperity gospel that says that if you believe enough or if you do enough, if you are a good enough person or have enough faith, if you give more, if you serve more, then God will bless you. He'll bless you materially with more money, a bigger house, a better car. He will bless you uh, physically with better health. He'll bless you relationally with more friends, with a spouse, with kids. And not only have you earned these things, you're deserving of these things. The prosperity gospel teaches that your lack of contentment Is on you. It is due to your lack of faith. It is due to your lack of belief. It is due to your lack of obedience. And rather than a gospel of grace, this is a—it is a stamp of shame, because what it says is that not having enough reveals that you are not enough. There's something wrong with you that has caused you to be without, and it perverts. The gospel doesn't it? It it reverses the roles almost because rather than following Jesus because of what He has already done, right? Because of His sacrificial death, His victorious resurrection, and His glorious ascension, you're following Jesus so that He might do something, so that He might give you something, so that He might uh, get something for you, do something for you. Because see, rather than seeing ourselves as sinners. Indebted to God as recipients of his free grace, we see God is indebted to us as though he owes us something. And so when Paul says in verse 6 here, but, but godliness with contentment is great gain, he is refuting the false teaching of these, these false shepherds who were really doing nothing more than lining their own pockets with the wool of their own sheep. And the great gain that Paul speaks of here, it's not material, it's not physical. It is not uh, relational. It is spiritual contentment, isn't it? It is this restored relationship that we have with God, the result of Christ's work on the cross. The contentment that God provides, it's not the result of the stuff he's given to you, but of the salvation he has secured for you. And that's why Paul can say that pursuing God, that godliness, this faithfully following the way of Jesus, that is what leads to the contentment you're looking for, that you long for, because the way of Jesus is what leads to truth. It's what leads to life. It leads to greater faith and intimacy in God. Things that are of such great gain, of such immense eternal value, they, they simply cannot be measured. But they can in some way be described. And that's what I think we see Paul doing in these next two verses. Look down here with me at verse 7 and 8 real quick. He says in verse 7, he says, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And here I think we see Paul give us five aspects of this contentment that we gain when we pursue God. And Number one, he begins by showing us that we gain a greater awareness of our dependence on God, don't we? Right, he says, we brought nothing into this world. We brought, we brought nothing with us. We showed up to the party empty-handed. Right, you ever get in, uh, you ever invited over to someone's house for a party or for, for a meal? And you know, the the obligatory first question is, what, what can I bring? And sometimes they're like, nothing. Just bring yourself, got it covered. You know, last night we went to a uh, a Halloween party at a a, a friends of the boys, and uh, you know they don't bring anything. We got all covered, and sure enough, they did. Like they had um, they had a hot dog bar, which that in of itself was pretty cool. But next to the hot dog bar was a chili bar. And that was enough. Next to the chili bar was the baked potato bar. And we actually kind of figured it out that, like, do you notice, like, the condiments for all three of those things are actually kind of the same? It's not really three bars. It's one bar. But it was still really, really awesome. And then, you know, this is, like, who here is uh, sick of sugar already this weekend? Yeah, last night I think I ate my weight in chocolate-covered pretzels. um, And it's not even Christmas yet. And they already had white chocolate pretzels. They were so good. But we didn't bring anything. We brought nothing to the party. We brought ourselves and our costumes. That was it. They provided everything. They contributed everything. And Paul's saying that's how this works, is that you brought nothing into this world, but God contributed everything. And we see this theme throughout Old Testament wisdom literature, don't we? Job, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Brought nothing with me. I think that's why Jesus, when he taught his disciples, when he taught us how to pray, he said, he said, pray like this. He says, give us this day our daily bread when we pray to the Father. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, It is a prayer that forms and fosters greater dependence on God, isn't it? The giver of grace, the giver of good gifts. And number two, if we brought nothing to the party and we've been given everything, then what we're gonna do is we're gonna gain a greater sense of gratitude towards God for the things he's given us, aren't we? God, remember, God owes us nothing. He owes you nothing. He's not indebted to you regardless of how much or how little you have done for him. Everything that he has freely given you, is out of his love for you, out of his grace and his mercy, regardless of how much or little you have. So we sing, we sing in response, singing praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise God for what we have, singing from a heart of gratitude. And number three, that leads to gaining a greater sense of, of stewardship with what we have, doesn't it? That we are not owners of our possessions, but stewards of another, right? Entrusted by the owner to us to fulfill his purposes, not our own. And everything that we have our money, our possessions, our time, our talents, our lives, our minds and intellect all of it belongs to God. And it's been entrusted to you by God to steward on his behalf and accomplish his purposes for his glory. And that perspective of stewardship, it begins to slowly change the way we perceive and the way that we view everything that we have, everything that we have been given, holding it with more open hands, ready to give it up and to give it back whenever God asks, even if it means being left with nothing in the end, knowing that we can't take anything out of this world anyway. Because it's not ours to take, it is simply ours to steward. John Calvin, in his sermon on this passage, he says, we must use the goods we have in our hands that we have been given and use them in such a way as to do homage to God, right, to show him respect and to bring him glory, which we cannot do unless we be content to resign them up and forego them. Content to surrender them, content to give them up and to give them back. And so while we are not owners of our possessions, I think we've all experienced times where our possessions have owned us, haven't we? In this passage, while it is about money, I think it's it's not just about money. It, it, those things that, that that possess us, it can be comfort, it can be our career. It can be our social status or financial security. It can be relationships or simply a dream that you have for the future. And those things that you hold with a close fist, that you won't let go of, that you refuse to surrender, those are the things that reveal your ultimate source of contentment, aren't they? Those are those things you won't let go. Those are those things you won't give back, even if God asks. And so I want to ask, like, what is that for you? What is that thing that you have that death grip on so tight your fingernails are bearing into the palm of your hand? What is that thing you can't imagine life without? What is that source of contentment for you? And as you're thinking about that, as you're envisioning that in your head, I need you to know God's not simply asking us for 10% of what he has. No, he's asking for everything, everything and nothing less. We follow after a suffering servant, don't we? One who didn't give 10% of himself, but he gave his entire self, his entire life, his all. And Jesus, he has called us as his followers to take up our own cross, not once, not twice, but each and every day with every step as we faithfully follow the way of Jesus, living our lives for his sake, stewarding our lives for his glory, amen? Because stewardship recognizes that contentment is not found in the gift, but in pursuing the giver of the gift. And that leads to number four, which is a greater sense of satisfaction and fulfillment in what God has given and how much he has given. Look at verse 8 again. He says, but if we have food and clothing with just these things, we'll be content. We're going to be okay. He's speaking of finding contentment not in luxuries, but in necessities, in having food to eat. Maybe not great food, maybe not having a lot of food, but in having food to eat. And not just clothing to wear, but really any covering, including shelter as as conveyed by the original Greek here. And yet, I think, as we think about this, having food and having clothing, we can't really go one day in our city without recognizing that we live in a world where not everyone has food, right? Not everyone has clothing. Not everyone has covering over them. And that's where our stewardship of what God has blessed us with comes into play, because God is going to provide for others through us. He has given us extra for those who don't. And that's partly why we established the Hands and Feet Fund a few years ago, because we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our world. And so what we did was we began by setting aside 5% of our giving each and every month a couple of years ago. And this goes to supporting needs uh, here in our church family through things like benevolence. And it goes to supporting the needs of our community through things like, uh, you know, we support Journeys, a local uh, organization that helps those that are without a home in the northwest suburbs. And when the pandemic began, they were, uh, they put a pause on their homeless shelter program that they run through a number of churches in the suburbs here. And instead, they started a, an emergency hotel program and I think if we've, even if you stayed at the Motel 6, uh, like, hotels aren't cheap, are they? And so they needed support for this. And so each month of the pandemic, we've uh, contributed $1,500 out of the Hands and Feet Fund, which covers, just barely covers one hotel room for an entire month. But what that means is that because of your generosity, a family that would not have had covering over this last year and a half has now had covering. Uh, we also, another thing that we did with the Hands and Feet team is we put together these compassion kits. You may have seen these blue bags on occasion. They're filled with a number of supplies that you're able to, uh, to pick up. You can pick them up after service out here in the lobby and, and hand these out to those that you know are in need. And it's not much, but it's something. And uh, we also ask that you include a, a $25 gift card to a grocery store and, and hand this to someone who you've seen in passing on your day that you drive past on a regular basis, someone you know is in need. And man, when you hand it to them, pray for them too, right? Don't just say you're gonna pray for them, stop and pray. It's not much, but what I think it's done is I've heard stories of how it's, it's lit a fire to want to do more. And so we've been praying about another opportunity to love our community that we're currently calling The Pantry, it's kind of the name until we find a better name, Uh, We've gone through a few of them, but uh, the pantry. And the idea is, uh, we're hoping to launch this next year, being able to provide resources to families here in our local community that are in need. And so uh, we're going to start small and, you know, experiment, evaluate, expand. It applies to everything we do. We're going to start small. We're going to be providing uh, diapers and wipes and formula. And as we uh, grow this ministry, God willing, being able to add uh, toys for young kids and, and supplies and maybe even uh, clothing as we go. And so uh, I know every time I say something like this, they're like, well, what, what can we do? Right now, here's what I need you to do. I need you to pray. I need you to pray for the pantry and for Sarah and three as they uh, finish putting all this together we're going to have an informational session in a few weeks after service to share more uh, but what I want us to do is when we share what it is that the pantry is all about I want our whole church family to say something to the effect of yeah, it's about time that's exactly what we needed to do when we're in uh, because we can't do this with two people we need everybody doing this uh, serving on a monthly basis with us Does that sound good if that's what we're praying for We're all praying for the pantry write that one down praying for the pantry but what we see in here with our, with our dependence, with our gratitude, with our stewardship and this sense of satisfaction it is that the more we're able to be able to content with less for ourselves, the more we're able to do for others, aren't we? The less we can live with, the more people we can help. And that leads to, I think, my favorite number five here is that through all of this, it brings us to a greater sense of Freedom. Right, that there is freedom with less. It, it removes some of the crushing weight of all these things that we are chasing after. I got a, a backpacking book back when we lived in Arizona, and um, it, it talked about uh, the idea of lightening your pack and carrying less so that you can hike further easier. And it had some rather extreme suggestions at first that, that seemed a little overboard. Like it talked about, uh, leave superfluous gear behind. Leave your, leave your gadgets behind. like, But... How can you check Twitter, but the whole idea is to get out to a place where you don't have cell phone coverage anyway, isn't it? Leave that behind. He had, a, he had one method called cut and whack. And the idea was anything that's not essential, just get rid of it. And so he's like, oh, there's straps all over your backpack, aren't there? And you need like 10% of them. He's like, cut the other 90% of the straps off. Cut the hooks off. Cut anything off your pack you don't need. Uh, your map. And Now, mind you, this book was like a few years ago. So we didn't have phones and GPS on our phones, so we took out these things called maps. You may have heard of them in history class. You unfolded them. You kept it in the glove box, and uh, you could never fold it back. It's kind of like uh, if you can fold the fitted sheet, you might be able to fold a map, but those are the two most difficult things in the world to fold. But what you're saying was, there's, uh, for those of you that have never seen a map, there was a border around it. Cut the border off. Uh, and then my favorite that i never forgotten was uh, your toothbrush. He's like, do you need a handle this long? No, you only need a handle that long. Cut and whack. And then he's like, and ditch that five-pound tent for a one-pound tarp that just does this. But the reason was he wanted you to lighten your load and limit your essentials so that you could gain this freedom when you were hiking, so that you could enjoy the hike and enjoy God's beautiful creation when you were out there. And that was some of the freedom that I think Jill and I began to experience when we downsized our house in this last move. The big thing was there was less mortgage, which led to less stress. There's a whole lot less house to clean, and now we got two extra people to help with the cleaning. Although I don't know if their amount of cleaning and the mess that they make offset each other, but they're learning. They're getting there. Less mortgage, though, less stress. But that was the idea behind the move is uh, I wanted a mortgage that, at that time, like layoffs in Motorola, it was when, not if. And I wanted a mortgage that I could afford wearing a green apron at Starbucks or an orange apron at Home Depot. And uh, sure enough, God just had another apron in mind for me a couple years after we moved. And so think about those things that you're carrying. The weight of those things, the weight of the mortgage, the weight of the credit card debt, the weight of the car lease, the weight of the cable bill. Think of the pressure of those things you're chasing after, that next promotion, that bigger paycheck, the bigger house, the newer car, that more elaborate vacation. Think about those things, and as you do, I also don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, right? I'm not saying that money and wealth and possessions are bad, that they are evil. That's not what's being said here. It doesn't say that we can't have those things, but what Scripture does say is that these things, rather than being freeing, the debt and the bills and the pressure, they only further enslave you, don't they? Rather than providing that contentment you long for, they only seek to weigh you down. But what Paul says is that pursuing God, it leads to contentment that brings about freedom. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But then Paul flips the coin in these last two verses. He shows us the other side, and what he shows us is that desiring more leads to destruction. Desiring more leads to destruction. Let's see what he says here in verse 9 and 10. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into a ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I'm going to say it again. Please don't hear what Paul's not saying here. I think we've, we've misinterpreted this verse a few times. Paul's not saying that money and wealth are inherently evil here. That's not what he said. He's, not saying that, he's also not saying that godliness without material possessions is of great gain. And those who do, they're, they're preaching the opposite of prosperity gospel. They're preaching a, a poverty gospel. Gospel, aren't they? That somehow having less leads to your holiness. And that through self denial, through asceticism, through the avoidance of of material things that bring pleasure, that that you can somehow earn or gain more of your righteousness. But he's also not saying here that those who are rich fall into temptation, that money is the root of all evil, right? He's not talking about what we have here, he's talking about what we desire, about what we lust after, about what it is that we covet. Because the passage is not about possessions, it's about our passions. It's a a warning of this progression of desire to deception and ultimately destruction. Right, he begins in verse 9 with a warning of, of this desire to be rich. He, he says in verse 10, not that money is evil, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And he's not saying that desires in and of themselves are inherently wrong. Right? We saw this over the last two weeks. Paul, he, he desired to be with Christ. He desired for this thorn to be removed from his flesh. Jesus, he, on the night before he was crucified, he desired for this cup to pass from him. Now, Paul here, he's speaking of a very specific desire, of a senseless and harmful desire for more, more of whatever it is that you are coveting, whatever it is that you are chasing, thinking that it will provide that contentment you long for. He's speaking here essentially of the 10th commandment, isn't he? That you shall not covet. Covet what? Like, can we get like a list and I find the things not on that list and I can still covet them? Well, he says in Exodus 20, 17, God says, do not covet your neighbor's house. Okay. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, their servant, their ox, their donkey. And you're like, that's good. I live in the Chicago suburbs, not coveting many ox and donkey right now. But in case that, that, he knew what we would do, didn't he? He knew we liked those lists where we're like, that's all he said. He says, but not just that, he says, anything, anything and everything that is your neighbor's, you shall not covet. And what I love is, you know, the other commandments, they are about uh, what we do, but this last one, it is about what we desire, isn't it? And it it connects back to the first commandment. It's not so much a list, but a circle. It connects back in the first, that you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not covet anything above me. I heard one pastor define covetousness as uh, desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. And covetousness is the opposite of contentment. And as that desire grows, it deceives, and your deception alters your perception, doesn't it? You don't see things as you act as they actually are. You're not seeing clearly. You're not thinking clearly. It is it is as though you are uh, inebriated and living in this almost alternate reality that doesn't exist. And and in that reality, what you what you can see a lot of times are opportunities to get ahead, when in reality you're being led into temptation. You're being led into a snare. You're, I can't help but picture Admiral Akbar right here. You're being led into a trap. There's a trap! And the five Star Wars fans said amen. But it's because we're not just simply chasing contentment. We're craving it, aren't we? We're craving it. We, it consumes us. It, it controls us. It is like we are, we are zombies, and that is the only thing that we can think of that we are searching after is that, that thing, that source of our contentment, and it typically leads to us doing one of two things, either taking something away from others or giving up something. We, we become a thief or we become a slave. And we become a thief by taking things that aren't ours, thinking that we are more deserving of them and we will obtain them by, by any means necessary, right? Crossing lines, ignoring laws. And the deception, it can become so great that you, you actually don't even know that what you're doing is wrong. You have, you have bought into it. You are blinded by your desire. You, you start to think that the rules apply to others, but they don't apply to me. I'm above the law. I'm above that. And sometimes it leads us to just simply not care, and we justify our desires. We become a slave. We become a slave by taking on debt, thinking that uh, if we had more money, we could buy more of that thing that we desire, more of that thing that we covet, more of that thing that will bring us contentment. Proverbs 22:7 says, "The borrower is a slave of the lender." Now again, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that debt and a mortgage and a car loan are sinful, that they are inherently wrong or evil. That's not what this is saying. It is simply saying, God is simply saying that it is enslaving. Because any time you take on debt, you are giving up a level of freedom, aren't you? I think you know this. uh, Okay, so you just got the the big idea that we've moved a whole bunch of times, didn't we? And uh, moving when we were in an apartment, whole lot easier than moving when you're in a house, isn't it? breaking a lease or having to sell the house. You don't break a mortgage. Mortgage breaks you. That wasn't really that funny, was it? (laughs) It was just more like, yeah, it's breaking. But we give up freedom, and we give up our freedom to someone else. But we don't just become a slave by taking on debt. We also become a slave by chasing an identity, especially the four Ps, right? Pay, power, position, and platform becoming a a slave to your career, becoming a a slave to the corporation you work for, and you will sacrifice anything at that altar. You will sacrifice your family. You will sacrifice your health, your faith, whatever it takes to fulfill that dream until one day you realize that this American dream that you were sold and that you were chasing is a nightmare you can't wake up from anymore, is it? I spent 17 years at Motorola chasing a career, chasing that next promotion, the bigger paycheck. I had specific points in my career that were plotted, goals that I must obtain in order to be successful. And my craving for more consumed me. It deceived me, and it led me into more than one temptation and snare that I just didn't see coming, and I just didn't care Chasing a career, chasing comfort, chasing safety and security, chasing family and your kids and, and their comfort and security, those things that we're chasing, they become the gods that we worship, don't they? They become the idols that we bow down to. They become the altars on which we sacrifice as we chase contentment in them. And that deception that the desire brings it ultimately will lead to your destruction. Verse nine says it will plunge you into ruin. And, like, can we just be honest that anytime the word plunger is used, something bad happened? It says in verse 10 that it will be a self inflicting piercing and, and pangs or grief. But, it, but it's self inflicted, right? It's things that we bring on ourselves. And what's interesting is none of this happens suddenly. It you didn't just, just happen. No, it happens very slowly, and it happens over time as life, just life in general, the busyness of life, the chaos of life, it, it ever so slowly draws our attention and, and affection further and further away from God, right? Its disrupting those regular rhythms in our life. We've been talking about that over the last couple of months, right? The last 18 months have just blown up our rhythms, haven't they? And we feel it. We feel when we, when we uh, get out of that daily rhythm of time with God in his word and, and in prayer. We, we, we miss that. And, and we, we've gotten out of this weekly rhythm of, of worshiping God together with his people. And as we've been talking over this fall, like we pursue what we prioritize, don't we? These are self-inflicted wounds, Paul says that begin by prioritizing other things above God, pursuing things other than God, because ultimately we believe that they can bring the contentment that only God can provide. And that desire for more, it destroys your health, it destroys your marriage, it will destroy relationships, your family, and even your faith. Because after a while, God, he, he sounds so silent, you almost can't hear him anymore, doesn't he? And he, he feels so distant that you're not sure where he went. And it leaves you feeling lost. It leaves you feeling alone. It leaves you feeling angry and afraid. You feel hurt. And, and it's hard. And it leads to your ruin, to your destruction as you slowly wander further away from the faith, Paul says. Further and further away from Jesus that deception that leads you not a path that will destroy your life, because what we start doing is we start covering up those things that we are facing. We start covering them up, telling one more lie, crossing one more line, and crossing lines that we can't uncross. It destroys our life by escaping what we're feeling. Anything to just numb the pain and make it go away, looking for that contentment in the bottom of a bottle or the, the bed or the arms or even just the ear of another person. Man, I love you. I hope you know that. I love you and I don't want that for you. I don't want that eternal destruction that this leads to and I don't want that earthly destruction this leads to. I don't want the pain and the pangs that these self-inflicted wounds bring. And so I need you to know, please listen if you've tuned out, you will never find contentment in more of anything but God. You will never find contentment more of any of those other things that we've been talking about today other than more of God, more of His presence, more of His love, more of His grace and mercy, more more of His word, more uh, of His people and, and worship, more of His Son, more of Jesus. That's why, as a pastor, I've kind of, I think my job description is simply this I want to help you more faithfully follow the way of Jesus. That's it. That's what I want to do. I want to help us keep our attention and our affection directed toward God, walking on the way that Christ has let us down. And so I want to close our time together in the Word here with a time of, of reflection. I want to ask some questions and. Um, I want you to feel free to write these down, maybe just snap a picture of them. But I want you to be thinking and reflecting over these. I'm going to give us a time of, of silent prayer and meditation to reflect before I close this in prayer. And the first question I want you to ask is this. What do I desire more of? What is that desire for you? What is that thing for you? And number two, how much more is enough for me? Right, what, what is that amount? Where is that line that you've drawn that says, then I will be content? Number three, I want you to ask yourself this. What would I do with more that I cannot do today? What, what is that thing that you feel like you're missing out on? What would you do? Where would you get, where would you go? Because I think that then helps with the fourth question is, What does that reveal about my source of contentment? What does it reveal about my heart's true desire, that thing that I won't let go of, the thing that I can't live without, good things that we have made ultimate things? What I need you to know is there's lots of things that are gonna make promises of contentment in this world, aren't there? But I need you to know that Jesus is the only one that provides that contentment you long for. Because only the words of Jesus point to the truth. And only the way of Jesus leads to life. I'm going to give us a minute or two here to bow our heads, to pray silently, to reflect over these questions. And as you're reflecting, I will be praying silently, praying as we have each and every week when we do this for the spirit to stir. I don't want us leaving today unaware of what that contentment we're chasing is, what that source of contentment is. And my prayers the Spirit would reveal to you. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.